Welcome to the podcast of Seven Rivers Villages Church in Wildwood, Florida. We are a multi-generational community of grace on mission, and you are always invited to join us online or in person. Learn more about us at sevenriversvillages.org. To Mark 1, we'll be doing, looking a little bit at Mark 1 and at Mark 2 this morning. And uh, I had something interesting happen last week, uh, after last week's sermon, and uh, I find it happens a good bit, and probably happens every week, and I just don't know it. And that is, uh, God is having a different conversation with people than I'm having with people in the room. As, uh, you know, I've got my sermon in front of me, and I'm talking about things. But it, it's this interesting thing that happens when people will come up to me after a sermon, or, you know, and say, hey, when you said this, that was, that really struck a chord with me. And I'm thinking, I didn't say that. <laughs> and, and then sometimes people will say, well, you didn't say it. And this is what happened this week. And somebody said, well, you didn't say this, but God said this while you're speaking. And in other words, I dropped the ball and God actually, <laughs> he scored the touchdown on that one. And uh, so my assumption is this morning, as I come in and we are looking at this passage of scripture together, is that uh, however many of us there are in this room, that's how many conversations God's having with people in the room. So he's not just talking through me, and he's not just talking to me, uh, but he's talking to you in a very powerful way. And hopefully what I say can be a part of that conversation this morning. So if you're willing and able, let me invite you to stand in honor of God and his word as we read a little bit of Mark chapter 1, and uh, then we flip over to chapter 2. So we'll begin in chapter 1, verse 14. Now after John the Baptist was arrested... Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon, Simon Peter, and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. And picking up in chapter 2, verse 13, he went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with, sinners and, with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray and ask him to bless it this morning. Hmm. For almost 2,000 years, people have been hearing the story. The story of you dining with a tax collector and have been shocked. Shocked at your grace, uh, shocked at 
the way it challenged people of your day. And we pray this morning that we might find ourselves shocked. Shocked not simply that you would have uh, a meal with a tax collector, but even more shocked that you might have a meal with us. That you would be delighted to call us friends, to be delighted to call us children of God. We pray that you would pour forth your spirit to enable us to see these wonderful truths in this passage. And Lord, I pray for myself. Mm. Uh, I am I'm not even to the level, level of fishermen or tax collectors in my mind. Uh, I have arrogance and insecurity all at work in my soul. So I pray that I would see one thing, the glory and the majesty of Christ as I proclaim your holy word. Would you bless us and would you be with us this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a seat. Can, can God step into your life and tell you to stop what you're doing and to do something new? To tell you to stop so that something new can begin. To follow him and put him first. And that's exactly what Jesus does here in this passage. He has the authority to heal. We've seen that. We've seen that he has the authority to uh, drive out demons and tell them what to do. But does he have the authority to step into our lives and say, drop what you're doing, come and follow me. And that's what we see in this passage. We encounter two groups of people, fishermen and, tax, and a tax collector, and Jesus calls them specifically to follow him. Now, the language, if you've studied this passage or heard a sermon on this before, the language of following is kind of the language of uh, a disciple and a rabbi. You followed your rabbi, and he taught you, and he trained you. You were his apprentice in that sense. But uh, this is very different what Jesus is doing here because the way that it worked back then is it's like applying to a college is you apply to the college of your choice and that's how you chose a rabbi is you went to the rabbi and said, I'm submitting to you, I'm, I want to follow you. And so the student began and initiated that. But it's different here because uh, Jesus is calling them and saying, follow me. And what that means, as we begin to think about this passage in a little more depth, is that none of these men were aspiring to be uh, spiritual teachers or scribes or Pharisees or anything. They were fishermen. There was, it was a tax collector. They weren't, they weren't aspiring to be scribes or you know, religious people at all. But Jesus came to them and called them, and they left they left their aspirations, they left their jobs, their financial security, their careers, their livelihoods. They left these things to follow Jesus. And that's shocking enough that Jesus did it backwards. He called them and said, hey, stop what you're doing. Now come follow me as my disciples. But uh, it's shocking, too, because of who he called, not just the fisherman part, but Levi, also known in the Gospels as Matthew. He's got two names. Levi got up and left everything and followed Jesus. Now, I know some of you may have watched The Chosen. I don't know if you have any watching The Chosen in here. Uh, we watched a couple of episodes because we wanted to see what it was all about. And uh, it was, you know, it's, there are things that I really appreciate about The Chosen because it reminds us that this was a real event in the real world with real people, with real stories and things that were going on in their lives. And, and that can be helpful uh, as you approach the scriptures to say, this is not a religious story, this is a real world story. So that's one of the good things maybe about The Chosen. But as you watch the show, as uh, you know, 
whether it's for good or for ill, I'll let you decide on that. You can talk to me about it later. Um, they take a lot of artistic license with things for creativity's sake. And uh, one of those is with Matthew. So as I was reading about, as I was watching the show with Matthew and Levi, I was very aware that they're painting him as a, as a very sympathetic character. He's, he's a little bit quirky. He has his differences and his oddities maybe in terms of the show. But uh, he is really portrayed as a sympathetic character. But the reality is, you know, he's got a backstory, a sympathetic backstory, all these things. But the reality is, as we look here at Mark, we're not told a lot about Matthew. We don't have any of his backstory. We just know he was a tax collector. And that would have meant he was anything but a sympathetic character. They hated his guts. And so Rebecca this morning, she said, I've got an illustration to help you understand how much they may have hated him. I was like, share away, my dear. And so she said, imagine there is a Ukrainian who is serving uh, the Russian occupiers, and he's turned against his own countrymen, and he's serving the Russians to try to keep himself safe, to try to make money, and to get ahead, and he is trying his best to extort the other Ukrainians and using his power to do that. I was like, that's pretty good. I'll use that, honey. So this is kind of the way that they would have hated Matthew. He was a villain, and that's why Jesus' words would have hit so hard to, this, uh, to the people in here. The scribes' criticism would have seemed valid. What is he doing? He's eating with tax collectors and sinners. This is wrong for him to do that. And I guarantee that pretty much all of us in this room would have had the same response as the scribes. How dare he do this? Now, I know sympathetic character in some on the chosen, but he was not a sympathetic character. Levi was a tax collector. And what that meant was that he chose that lifestyle. He chose that. It wasn't foisted upon him. The way that you got to be a, a tax collector in that time period was uh, you actually entered into a bidding war with other people to get that job. So you had to purposefully try to do that. And in order to do this, you knew if I become a tax collector, I'm becoming one of the most hated people in Israel. So in doing this, all of God's people, everybody I know who's really a religious person, Anybody I've interacted with, they're going to hate me and want nothing to do with me. And they're not going to be able to go into the synagogue and join into the synagogue worships. So what he's doing at this point is he is making plans for his future for God not to be a part of his future. That's what he's doing. He was a happy traitor. It just didn't matter to him. So according to one commentator by the name of uh, Kent Hughes, he says, this is utterly amazing. For all of the people in Capernaum, Levi was the most unacceptable to be one of Christ's disciples. Jesus sought out the man no one else wanted, the one everyone else wished would fall under the immediate wrath of God. So what's going on here? Is heaven's ultimate insider comes looking for Israel's ultimate outsider to bring him into the kingdom of God. And psychiatrist Kurt Thompson said this, and I... I you can feel the weight of this in this passage and maybe in your own life. But the psychiatrist said, we are all born into the world looking for someone looking for us. We're all born into the world looking for someone looking for us. And if it's not God, we're looking to say, what is that thing that's out there that's going to heal me, that's going to make me whole? But it's really God. 
So as we look at this passage, uh, it's the call. I have, there are three points. I forget them, but we'll go through them. So first one is this, the call of grace to someone who's unworthy. So last week we looked at a passage in which Jesus said, I have the authority to forgive. In this passage, we see something different. It's not just somebody happenstance by. It's Jesus is actively looking uh, for someone to forgive. Mark chapter 2, verse 14. As he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax, collector, at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And Levi rose and followed him. And then Levi throws a banquet in Jesus' honor. It doesn't say that here, but it says it in one of the parallel passages in one of the other Gospels. So Levi is throwing a banquet in Jesus' honor, and he's invited all of his tax collector and sinner friends to come to this. Uh, and then the, the, uh, the Pharisees uh, get into a huff about it. And then we read this in chapter 2, verse 17. And when Jesus heard about it, why, are, why is he with tax collectors and sinners? He said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Now, in this passage, there's some confusion about that. Jesus was not saying that the, the Pharisees or the scribes of the Pharisees were righteous. He's not saying that because there are other places where he's, he's very clear about the sins of their hearts and that they're not righteous before God. That's not what he means. The reason he says this about uh, those who... Uh, are sick, need a physician, is number one, it was a common saying, apparently, and the Pharisees would say, okay, we agree with that sentiment at least. But here's the second. As, as Jesus is communicating this reality, the people who think they're well don't go to the doctor. People, you know, our home remedies or our self-care, all of these things that seem to be working for us, they don't go to the doctor because they don't think they need a doctor. I can handle this on my own. But when you come to something that you can't handle on your own, you realize, I've got to go to the doctor. I know I've told this story somewhere in the past year, year and a half, however. But I was thinking about it this week as uh, quack home remedies that don't work. So I was in my 30s. We had, a big, we had about an acre of land in Clemson, South Carolina. And we had kudzu and poison ivy. And sometimes when they're all on a vine together, on a tree together, you can't tell the difference. So I was getting rid of the kudzu, and I got into poison ivy. It was all over my arms, it was on my neck, it was on my face, it was on my torso, it was on my legs, it got everywhere. And uh, so I had an older man that I knew, and he said, do you want to know the secret to getting rid of poison ivy? Here's the secret. Get a tongue depressor and scrape it along the top so that it starts oozing, and then get hydrogen peroxide and pour it across the top, and that will pull it right out. And some of you are horrified. I wish I had been that horrified. (laughs) So I tried this. I've got to be honest. The tongue, digress, the, the tongue depressor across the top, it, it felt so good because it was scratching it. Oh, oh okay, I'm, doctor's orders. I'm just scratching this thing. It's not getting any better. In fact, it's getting more, more and more of a deep red on my arm. So I decided I've got to go to CVS. So I went to CVS, and I went, and I said, hey, do you have something for poison ivy? And he looked at me, and he said, okay. And he walked me back to the aisle with the poison ivy, and uh, he's, he's looking at my arms, and he said, what have you been doing? So I told him, and if you've ever feel like an idiot <laughs> doing any, that's uh, the, the CVS pharmacist. He just looked at me, and he said, let me see your arm for a second. He started grabbing my arm like this. He said, can you feel that? I said, yeah. He said, I think you've got vascular damage. And I was thinking, vascular damage? I've got to go to the doctor. So it was only then when I thought I was destroying my health. 
that I finally went to the doctor. Okay, the Pharisees. You're kind of like, well, does it have a point? It has a point. Um, the Pharisees weren't ready to see their need yet. And so they were using laws and ceremonies and rules and all sorts of things as tongue depressors, as a self-care remedy. It feels good to do those things, right? It makes me feel good about myself. I'm doing these things, but it's not really dealing with the deep problems of their hearts. They need a real doctor. They really needed Jesus. Um, But the tax collectors and the sinners and the prostitutes, others, they felt their need the most and they felt helpless to do anything about it. I've made a mess of my life. How do I, how does this get repaired? And maybe you feel that way. I had a conversation this past week with a young lady who, uh, um, she's not in our church, just so you know, so you don't start trying to guess. Is it her? It's, who's, you know, who's young in the room? Um, somebody's not in the room. Somebody's not in our church plant. I had a conversation with a young lady who was looking at her life and assessing, and she said, I just don't feel like I'm worthy of love. I don't feel like I'm worthy of being loved. She'd made some mistakes in her life, and you know, she was uh, beginning to assess those things about herself, and she was thinking about the possibly, possibility maybe of getting married someday, and she said, I just don't feel like I am worthy of love. I feel horrible about me. But she also projected this not just onto other people, like if people found out about my life, they wouldn't love me. She projected this onto God, and she thought, if I feel this way about me, then God must feel this way about me. Like somehow she had a radio signal for God's emotions and feelings towards her. It's like, I feel this. This must, this must be an accurate understanding of who God is. And uh, we think this. I mean, we, we think that our feelings match his. But I mean, look what Jesus says here. He's, I came to heal sinners. I came for sinners. I came out of love for sinners. This is, and this is the beauty of how God meets us in the gospel. Is we may not feel worthy of his love, But he loves us apart from our worth. He loves us, and because of that, he sent Christ. And he actually rejoices when when we feel our worst and we see our sin. God is rejoicing over us. So, Luke 15, I was reading reading that in my quiet time. I was looking at this passage this week. They all kind of like coalesce with my conversation with this young lady. And one of the things that I recognized in Luke 15 is there's there's a very similar situation to what's going on in here. Jesus is talking about talking to Pharisees and to scribes about why he spends time with sinners and tax collectors. Why does he do this? And so he gives three parables in Luke 15 to help us understand that. And the first of those is a parable of the lost sheep. And so there's a shepherd who has 100 sheep, one wanders off, and he leaves the 99 to go find that one. And when he finds that one sheep who went off and went astray and brings that sheep back, Jesus says, I tell you, that he rejoiced more over the one that was lost and found than he did over the 99 who never ran off. He rejoiced over the one that was lost and found. Rejoiced. And then, and he actually uses the word, and then there's a lady who's in a, she's, she has 10 silver coins. She loses one. She can't find it. So she turns her house upside down, gets all the, every, all the lights, lanterns, everything to try to find this coin. And when she finds this one coin, She calls all of her neighbors and says, Rejoice with me. I have found the lost coin. And then after that is when Jesus tells the parable of the prodigal son, as we've come to know it. 
And this one son wants the finances of the father. He wants the father's wealth. He just doesn't want the father's house. So he goes far afield with all of his uh, earthly belongings, squanders them all, and comes back. And the passage says that when the father saw him, he ran after him and rejoiced. Then you know, the son has this, this kind of script prepared. Father, I'm not worthy to be called your son anymore. I want. And the father just stops him and says, go and get the, 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 the rich robe. Go and get the signet ring for his hand. Go and get sandals for his feet. And kill the fattened calf because this son of mine was lost and now he is found. And he rejoices over that. Right? So as we're looking at this passage, Jesus says he has come for the sick. He's come for us. He's come for the broken. So I'm telling this person this. And I said, the Lord rejoices over the broken people who recognize their brokenness because they're on their way home. He sees them from afar and he goes and meets them. He rejoices. Zephaniah 3.17 says this. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will celebrate over you with loud singing. He rejoices over us. There's this quote I've come across several times in the last couple of weeks. And it says something to the effect, um, sure, feel ashamed when you sin, but not when you repent. When you repent, that's a time to rejoice because you're returning home. Now, this, uh, this young lady I was talking to, she said, yeah, I know Jesus feels that way about me, but sometimes I don't feel that way about the Father. The Father's angry. And I said, well... This is what it says in the Old Testament. Uh, he rejoices over us. And this is what Jesus says in John 14, 9. Uh, one of the, the apostles says to Jesus, show us the Father and that will be enough. And he says, haven't, Jesus says, haven't you been with me long enough to know that if you've seen me, you've seen the Father? Or as one commentator said it, he said, there is no God in heaven who is unlike Jesus on earth. The same compassion that Jesus has for us the Father has for us. He rejoices over us. It's not the healthy who need a, the, who need a doctor, but the sick. I've not come, the right, come to call the righteous, but sinners. So if you're looking at yourself and you, you've got these past sins, these things that rear their heads for you and you think, I don't feel like I'm worthy. I feel like I'm unqualified. Well, congratulations, you're in the right place because this is the place of healing. Christians are not good people, but sinful people who have encountered the goodness of God. Christians are not good people living for God, but sinful people who believe that he's provided a savior to die for us. That's what it means, first and foremost, to be a Christian. But and this is something I think that they're having to deal with, and something that Jesus is getting at with somebody like Levi. Um, Jesus is eating with sinners and tax collectors, and we're seeing them come to faith. But I want you to notice this, is that Jesus doesn't leave him in the same condition. He didn't just forgive him. He called him to follow Jesus. Jesus showed him grace that no one else had ever shown Levi. Yet when Jesus called him, there was a necessity for a conscious repentance and turning away from that old lifestyle to something new because his lifestyle was leading him away from God. But he's, he's saying, you need to turn and pursue this relationship with God. So I'm going to lead you into a new life, a new way of living, and become the shaping sinner. And this is, you know, if, if he's the physician, this is doctor's orders. So what we see is that Jesus calls us from something bad to something better. And so Jesus says to 
Levi, follow me, and Levi left everything. Now, this is hard, I think, for an American audience. I don't know if it's as hard for you, but when you start talking to people, you realize uh, that Jesus is calling for our lives to change and saying, this is important for you to move in this direction. Uh, We don't like to change specific things. We are expressive individualists. We want to live life on our terms the way that we want to. And that's very common for us as people in the United States. But I want to show you something in the, just in the passage. Um, you know, people say, love me, I should be free to follow my heart. So as you look at chapter 1, after Jesus calls the first disciples, he says to follow him. Then in verse 21, that little section, chapter 1, is Jesus heals a man with an unclean spirit, with a demon. So what is Jesus doing? He's giving this man back his life. And so in chapter 1, at the end, around verse 40, Jesus heals a man with leprosy who had been ostracized and, and separated from other people. So what is Jesus doing with this man? He's giving him back his life. And then in chapter 2, just before this passage with Levi, Jesus heals a man who's paralyzed and restores his life. So what is Jesus doing? He's giving him back his life. And so when you look at Jesus here, and Jesus is calling Levi to leave those things, come and follow me, and and he leaves everything. What is Jesus doing? He's doing the same thing he's been doing the entire time in, in Mark's gospel. He's giving this man back his life. That's what Jesus does when he calls us to come follow him, is he's giving us back our lives, because we're all already following something, or we're anchored to something, and it is not a healthy situation for us. So Jesus is calling us to follow so that we can have our lives restored. I'll give you an example. So years ago, when uh, I was doing college ministry, there was a, a girl that was kind of connected to our group. And a lot of her friends were involved with our campus ministry. And uh, she grew up in a church, and all of her friends came to me and said, Stephen, could you meet with her? Because she's here in college, and she's starting to have doubts. For the first time in her life, she's starting to have doubts. And I said, yeah, I'd love to talk with her. So we met over uh, coffee for a couple of hours and just talked. And so it was, I listened to her talk about her struggles with doubt and it seemed very genuine. And then we started talking and, and she said, I have specific questions about uh, God. And, you know, I've encountered some stuff where I think maybe this isn't true after all. I said, well, let's, let's deal with some of your questions. And she said, well, you know, science. And I said, well, let's talk about that. You know, the early founders of science were all Christians and just kind of didn't, you know, explain this to her. And she said, okay, okay, well... Um, well, not just science. People, people change the gospel stories, right? People change the stories. And so we talked about how we know that the Bible is true, and that's really what was close to what really was, really what was written. And uh, she said, well, you know, judgmental people in Christianity. So we talked about that for a while. And then she said, well, you know, all religions are basically the same. So then we talked about that for a while. And then she said, well, you know, contradictions in the Bible. So basically she had found, it seemed like she'd found this website with all these accusations and problems with Christianity, and she was just kind of numbering them off. But as I was listening, I I was hearing her not just ask these questions, but she kept going back to this one particular source for the question, like these questions and problems. And I realized there's a boy involved in this. There's an atheist boy that she's listening to, and she knows if I've, I cannot be a Christian and date atheist boy, and I want to date atheist boy, and this is the only way I can like, have some sort of um, psychological, you know, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Do you know the word I'm looking for? 
Yeah, justify. Thank you. That's good. So I can justify this by saying, well, I have my own doubts, so I can be with the boy. Now, what's she, what's she getting ready to do? She's getting ready to give up her life for a boy. She's getting ready to cause pain to her parents and to her family and to her friends. She's getting ready to reject everything she ever said she believed for a boy, right? This is kind of what he's talking about here, is following something, and it takes away our life. It doesn't give life to us. So she's abandoning her life for something else, and we all at some point do this or have done this. We make decisions about things we know are going to get us far afield of the good things and the life that is found in the gospel. Some of you have seen that with your work. Some of you have seen that with relationships. Some of you have seen that with friendships. We see this. I saw this uh, when I was in college for myself. And uh, is I, I, my whole life I, I was fascinated with Disney movies and things, so I decided I want to work for Disney. And so I, one summer I worked there. I was a tour guide. That's a long story, but that's, you know, shove that aside. And so a year and a half later of God doing some big work in my life, I went back to work for Disney again. And this time I had more scruples. I had more values. I had more commitments. And so I decided I'm going to work for Disney again. I'm going to decide whether God's calling me to go into ministry or maybe he's calling me to have a career at Disney. So I've got these two things that I'm deciding on. And so right off the bat, as I'm meeting with the person who's coming, the interviewer for Disney, he said, hey, uh, you know, I, I knew I had had a really good interview with this guy. And I said, hey, I've got a question for you. Will I have to work on Sundays? Because my faith is important to me. I want to be a part of a, a faith community. And he said, um, he said, well, I can't answer that question for you. That's going to be a question you have to answer, ask and answer there from your manager. I was like, okay, well, I'll say yes to this. So I said yes to that. And I went and worked and, you know, went through training and everything. And then I went and uh, asked my manager my first day of work is, hey, can I have my Sundays off? And my manager said, you're, at the, lo you're the low man on the totem pole. You're a college worker. So uh, other people get their days off they've chosen. You have to work on Sunday. I was like, okay. But my manager was cool. And she said, I'll work with you. I will arrange for you to be able to go to worship on Sunday. So you can come in late after your worship, whatever time it is, you can come in late. I was like, this is fantastic, okay? So I can go to work, and then uh, I can go to church, and I can go to work. And then, after about three weeks of driving across town from Disney to where there actually was a church uh, that I wanted to attend, I just started sleeping in in the mornings. Just did. Uh, so, uh, and I never told my manager, <laughs> sleeping in, I'm a college student. I just kind of blew off worship. But, but after those like four months working there, I was dry as a bone. And I realized I'm never going to do that again because I need the time with God's people. I need to be singing. I need to be confessing. I need to sit under the word myself. And that was hard for me to kind of, I had to come to that conclusion on my own. If somebody had said beforehand uh, that you were going to make those choices, I would have said, no, I'm not. Um, but it was a slow thing that was going. Now, some of you are in here kind of going, wait, 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 what about like emergency service workers and those kind of things? And I go, That's a whole conversation for another time. So we're going we to talk about that later. Um, you're kind of like, did he just dismiss that? No, I just said, we'll talk about it later. Okay, so, <laughs> so this happens with us with a lot of things. Is we, We're given a decision, and it seems exciting. It seems valuable. It seems productive. It seems upwardly mobile. We make these decisions, and so slowly they might have... The, a negative impact on us. And so when Jesus is calling us to obey him, 
He's saying, I'm giving you back your life. It doesn't feel like it right now because it feels like you're giving up a lot. But I'm asking you to follow me, and in the end, is re- you're going to see how worthwhile this is. So what he's doing with Levi is giving him back his life. But he didn't just give him back his life. In this passage, you know, he left, but he still had his old friends. So leaving didn't mean, you know, I, I'm breaking all these relationships. He brings Jesus into those old relationships, and they start becoming transformative for the people he knew. But there's another group. This is a fascinating thing as I was reading through this. There's a parallel, a lot of parallels between the calling of the fishermen, Peter, Andrew, James, and John, and um, Levi. And uh, some of it has to do with them bringing Jesus into their homes. One, Jesus heals Peter's mother-in-law, and then he begins to heal Levi's friends. But there's another parallel in this way. As in Mark chapter 1, verse 17 to 18, Jesus says to these fishermen, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him, just like Levi. Now, it makes sense to us that Jesus might call Levi from what he was doing because he's a tax collector. He's made a choice that's going to completely remove him from the good things of God. But uh, James, John, Peter, Andrew, they're just fishermen. They're just hard workers. They were still a part of the synagogue. They were still probably really known in the community. But Jesus is calling them to leave their career, their, what they were doing, and this becomes a really big thing because we just talked about this, is there are some things that we want to follow and there's some things that anchor us so that we can't follow. And this is what Jesus is doing with the fishermen, is he's dealing with the things that anchor them so they can't truly follow. So perhaps, uh, you know, we, as you look at it, one was this is the family business. And so they're leaving the family business. So one, it has, it has something to do with their career, which for a lot of us, that anchors us. This is my career. And then for some, it, what anchors us is it's my family. I can't do anything against my family. And this is really hard. So this is what one writer said. He said, in traditional cultures, you get your identity from your family. So when Jesus says, I want priority of your family, the family business, leave your, your, the family business, that's drastic. But then he goes on to say, in our individualistic culture, saying goodbye to our parents isn't a big deal. But for Jesus to say, I want priority over your career, that's hard for us. So what he says is Jesus is saying, knowing me and loving me, resembling me, serving me, must become the supreme passion of your life so that everything else comes second. And that's hard. That's a difficulty to say, Jesus is first in my life. Because for some of us, depending on our background and our culture and who, who we are and where we're from, there's a cost that's involved with that. Um, I read um, a, couple of, uh, a couple of weeks back, I read in a book called Common Ground. It's a collection of stories of Christians who are trying to make an impact in culture. And there was a story of somebody named Tom Lynn, and Tom is the president of InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. He's been a missionary. He's a, he's a Taiwanese American, and uh, his parents immigrated when he, I don't know if it was before he was born, but when he was very little. And if you know anything about people who immigrate to the United States, it can be very hard because there is racism. They don't have the doors and, and open to them the way that other people do. And so his, Tom's parents worked as hard as they could 
probably working numerous jobs to help him get ahead. And so he worked very hard. He, he got accolades in school. He won awards. He won awards in athletics. He did a great job coming through, living up to his parents' expectations. Then he got the letter of acceptance to Harvard. His parents were elated. He's going to Harvard, our son. What a great immigrant story as to go from moving here, immigrants, and our son is at Harvard. What, how fantastic is that? Uh, he grew up Christian, but it wasn't until he went to college that his faith really took off. And... Uh, he decided that God was calling him to be a missionary. So when he went and told his parents, who were Christians, that he wanted to be a missionary, he thought they would rejoice, and he, wasn't, he did not expect the pushback and the anger that they expressed to him. We worked so hard for you to do this, all these years slaving, and you're going to be a missionary? No, you need to go be a doctor. You, need to, you have a career ahead of you. You can't go and be a missionary. You just can't. And his last words for some years that his mom said to him uh, was, if you do this, I will kill myself. Right? The family pressure to do this. Tom felt that God was calling him. He, he had a sense that God had called him into this. Uh, he, was, he said he was reading Mark 10, and he said it was like the Holy Spirit said to him, I have a mission for you, Tom. Go sell everything you have and give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. Then come and follow me. And he said, that's what God was calling me to do, even if I have to say no to my family. So he kept trying to reach out to them. They would have nothing to do with him. They stopped they stopped uh, being around their Christian community. They stopped going to church. It was just so devastating for them what their child had done. And he said it went on like this for years until his mom got cancer. And then there was no more talk about missionaries, those kind of things. He, he came off the mission field and started taking care of his mom. And they went to uh, chemotherapy. They went to doctor's visits. They did all the things that you have to do for somebody who is struggling with cancer. And during this their relationship was knit back together. And so his mother, um, she called him in and said, I was wrong to do this to you. If God has called you to be a missionary, I love you and I want you to do that. So there, there was reconciliation, but for years, it was very difficult. It was very hard. And so he called them to the mission field. And it was hard. But Tom looks at what God did and said, it was amazing what God has done in terms of ministry. They, they were in Mongolia. Now he oversees something like 40,000 college students in the United States. So they have a great ministry here, and he says it was worth it. And as we look at this passage, what we see is God makes broken men into new men. He makes sinful women into righteous women. He turns cowards into courageous people. And he makes their lives in the world bigger than they would be. See, he doesn't just make our bad lives better. He takes good lives and even makes them bigger and has more of an outreach and an impact on the world around us. Now, if you're like me, and the, pat, the preacher up front was talking about a missionary and uh, holding it up like somehow this is, a, this is what you all need to be, uh, that preacher needs to be beaten. <laughs> because I should never make you feel like you're called to be a missionary on the mission field. That's not my job. That's not what I intend. So let me back off a little bit and say following Jesus for you may not look going, like going to Mongolia. It might not look like moving away from the villages. It might look simply like this. Going to the person where you have an estranged relationship. That's following Jesus too. That may look like going to somebody and saying, I've wronged you and I am sorry. And confess and repent. 
Following Jesus may mean that you say no to certain opportunities to make room for other things in your life. That's a big deal. That's following Jesus. Loving, following Jesus may mean loving the difficult person in your life and loving them well. Following Jesus may mean that you make a friend with somebody in this area who is not from your economic background, maybe doesn't live in the villages. It may mean saying, I'm going to volunteer some time in my community because I have the time to do that. It doesn't look like going somewhere big. It may mean sometimes that you don't even leave home. Rebecca has always been uh, impressed by the example of her aunt, Dot, um, Dot's husband, Rawson, was diagnosed at the end of World War II with MS. And they thought that he was going to die within just a couple of years, but they found that it was actually a genetic disorder that was a lot long, longer lasting. So he lived into his 80s. And so he was in a wheelchair for a good portion of his life. There were school teachers together, but slowly his body just began to shut down. And then Rebecca's grandmother, her body began to shut down. So Dot took care of people in wheelchairs, two different people, for 20 years of her life, serving them, just at home, taking care of the people that God had providentially put right in front of her. So she said no to a lot of things in her life. She had a lot of blessings, a lot of things. She would never have said that she felt like God had taken good things away. She would have said, that it is a privilege and an honor to be able to serve my husband and to serve my mother this way. And some of you have those opportunities before you right now, and you're already doing that. So it doesn't mean going afield, going far. It may just mean looking and saying, what are the opportunities that are right here for me right now? Reorienting my life uh, around what Jesus calls me to do, which is loving the people around him that are broken, just like he loved the people around him that are, were broken. So he's not, and you understand, when he's calling us to do this, he's not calling us to do something that he himself has not done for us. Is He is able to redefine us because he, in some ways, redefined himself. He became guilty so that we could become forgiven. He became a sacrifice so that we could become sons and daughters. And the only way that we will reorient our lives and say, I'm going to live for Jesus is to see that he died for us. That I was the one condemned, but now I'm the one who's forgiven. He was the one who was righteous, but he's the one who became condemned and died for me. I was the one who was paralyzed, but now I'm the one who can run. I'm the one who was lost, but now I'm the one who was found. And so, I started by saying, okay, God is having a conversation. A conversation with everybody in the room, besides what I'm saying. And I'm going to assume that you have a situation in your mind right now saying, I think Jesus is calling me to follow through and do this. This is what it means to follow him right now. So I'm going to give you an opportunity just for a minute to pray where you are and say, Lord, what is it you're calling me to do? How are you calling me to reorient things? Where are you calling me to step out in faith, to leave something behind, whether it's my pride, ego, whatever, and step out and obey? So just take a minute, a moment, and I'll let you do that right here, right now.
Mm. Father, we are grateful that you have conversations with our souls and the deep parts of who you are. And uh, there are things we've seen that we've known for some time. We just haven't said them out loud about things in our lives that need to change to follow you, things that we need to, to uh, where we need to obey, things we need to leave behind and truly follow you no matter where you lead. So we pray that you would give us the strength to do that, to see that what we have in you is better than anything we might leave behind. That if I lose everything but I have you, I have lost nothing. But if I have everything in the world and I don't have you, I truly have nothing. But in you, we have all good things. And so we pray. We pray that you would give us the ability to believe and to trust and to step forward in faith. We're grateful that you have forgiven all of our sins. We pray that that forgiveness would well up in us in gratitude and we'd be able to obey you and trust you in the difficult areas of obedience. We pray that you would do this in your holy name. Amen. Thank you for joining us on this podcast, a production of Seven Rivers Villages Church in Wildwood, Florida. Learn more at sevenriversvillages.org.